to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Mike Konzel. Mike is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute where he works on financial reform, unemployment, inequality, and a progressive vision of the economy. His blog, Rorty Bomb, was named one of the 25 best financial blogs by Time Magazine. A contributor to The Nation, his writing has appeared in the Boston Review, Democracy, The American Prospect, The Washington Monthly, Slate, Dissent, and most recently in Vox. He's also appeared on PBS NewsHour, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow Show, CNN, Marketplace, and more. He and I had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Mike Cons. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Now, you work at the Roosevelt Institute? That's correct. Roosevelt Institute is the nonprofit partner of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Presidential Library. So we do a lot of work keeping the FDR legacy alive, the New Deal legacy alive, and then also make it relevant for today's world. Do you ever ask the guys and gals at the Hoover Institute, like, why don't you name your institute after like a winner? <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit in the scene. I, I don't work. Um, so the presidential library is upstate New York, up in uh, uh, Hyde Park. We're down in, in Manhattan, our core office. And I'm part of the team that does the relevant policy stuff, though I get to hear presidential library gossip because it is a very small uh, cookie scene, as you might imagine. So, you know, all the stories about like whether or not the Nixon people are in this has been reported, like whether or not the Nixon people are, are like very loyal to Nixon or actually want to open up the archives and figure out what happened. Um, and the Gerald Ford people just do the same exhibit over and over again because they run out of stuff to do. So uh, we I, I, Hoover's far enough away that we don't bug them enough, but we should get more in on that. Well, what is the best presidential library gossip you've ever heard? Oh man. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, the, for, the, 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 running joke is that the Gerald Ford presidential library just has one exhibit because it's, uh, that impeachment and pardoning, uh, storyline for Ford, though there's obviously a lot of other stuff he's done. Um, I just finished reading Fear City, the book about the New York near bankruptcy, which Gerald Ford is a major player in. So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. The FDR library, it's, it's out of the way in upstate New York, but if you get a chance to go, it's really cool. There's a lot of fun stuff there. Well, yeah, I think that would be a fascinating scene just to be, you know, involved in. Yeah, there is, there's always, um, there's this great thing. There, there's a book that's like proto Keynes from like 1930, uh, called, I think, The Road to Plenty, uh, which kind of made the argument government spending could pull you out of a slump. And, uh, it's kind of like proto Keynes. It was, it was close, but it wasn't exactly there. And FDR read it, and he had a copy of it. And in the back, he wrote his only note on it. His note was, um, too good to be true, can't get something for nothing. Uh, and it's always like a kind of famous joke that he originally kind of panned Keynesian spending. Uh, <laughs> and I, I emailed um, the, the people up there, and they sent me like a picture of it. And, it, and so I put it on my website. It was really fun because it's like, yeah, that's crazy. That's, um, you know, that's, that's just little artifacts like that. I had a friend who went up and who looked at, um, who's a labor guy and um, who went up and looked at FDR's like daily planner. And it was like the 1935 day he signed the Wagner act, which like created mid century unionism. Uh, and it's like, you know, you know, 8am get breakfast, 10am sign Wagner act <laughs> noon, meet someone for lunch. And it's, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, that's just like a daily planner. But it has, those little artifacts are pretty cool. I think they like just give a depth to something that's really interesting. I want to ask you in a second about some stuff you've written, which I found fascinating, but 
working in an institute like you do, like what's the day to day at nine to five? You're, you, do you, I mean, do you consider yourself working in like a think tank? It's definitely a think tank, and we call ourselves a think tank. So there's definitely that. So what what is it? What kind of work is that? Is it just make work for politicos? Is it uh, faux academic? Um, I think think tanks do a couple different things. One is, do you get a better office than your average academic? No, I don't think so. Um, it, it depends on which academic, because um, there's like so much inequality in the academy. Um, so there, there's kind of two things. One is that there's a whole body of research that requires a set of skills to understand and do, but no academic would be able to put on a CV or put towards a tenure package. So things like what's going on with the wage gap? What is a reasonable estimate of what the Republicans' health care bill will do to premiums? What is um, the effect of Dodd-Frank on consumer lending? That You can't just like walk off the street and do that kind of analysis. You need some skills to do it. But again, it's not so interesting or groundbreaking that like cutting edge people or professional like academics will do it. Um, and if the private mar- and the private market will do it sometimes, but it tends to only be in a very monetized kind of way. So there's a work for a body of knowledge production that doesn't get done normally. That's a big thing. And the second, I think think tanks can do to be useful. Uh, and there's a lot of ways think tanks are terrible, um, but to be useful is to kind of interface between experts and the broader public sphere, right? The, the broader staffers, uh, politicians, advocacy groups, media, uh, and kind of go between, you know, academics doing work on stuff, you know, kind of being uh, kind of informational arbitrager, if you, if you know the finance world, right? So kind of taking advantage of the fact that there's only so much bandwidth in people's day uh, and kind of propagating ideas that way. Now, a lot of think tanks are basically just mouths for corporate interests, and I don't want to romanticize them at all. I think we do a very good job, uh, in part because uh, we're not very rich and we're not very right wing, but, um, you know, there, there is ways that the, the work's useful and, and, and I think important. And do things like come on podcasts to talk about neo liberalism. Now you've written a few Vox pieces about this, and this is a word that is capturing at least some part of the public sector's imagination because it basically, is it fair to say the shorthand, like this sort of tweet is that like neoliberals think that the problem isn't capitalist structure it's sort of the it's bad behaving people in the structure and if you can get some people behaving better that the system really can work for everybody like the labor class and the sort of producers and one percenters and that sort of thing i think i think so the term um the term came up because um a lot of people have been upset with the way it's been deployed in the public sphere not just People in the center on the right, but a lot of academics feel that the term's gotten a little fuzzy and is not very rigorous. Uh, and this kind of came to head with Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine writing a piece saying the term had no meaning, which is a little bit further, right? It's not just that it's like used sloppily, but it actually doesn't even describe anything. We can talk about what he said in, uh, in a little bit. But I kind of want to just push back on that. And so uh, I'm a contributing writer at uh, Vox.com, the website. Uh, it's an excellent website. And yeah, I kind of want to push back and say there's an actual set of ideas here that are important to understand. And even though the term gets abused a lot and often is thrown at people on social media to say they're sellouts or corporate, you know, corporate sellouts or whatnot, that there is an actual meaning here. And the best way I think to start to approach it is just to say it is a set of things that happen in reaction to the economic crises of the 1970s. Uh, so we can think of it as a period of time in which ideas and institutions and political actors are changing rapidly that comes out of the crises of the 1970s, which we're seeing to discredit a lot of the mid-century liberalism that came before. We can talk about that. 
Um, and when that period ends, who knows? Historians will figure that out. But uh, certainly the one-two punch of Brexit and Donald Trump being elected uh, last year might be one way the system is really buckling. And like, yeah, I mean, in the mid-20th century, right, like real liberal socialist communists like Eisenhower had the top tax bracket at like 89%, right? I mean, on some level, we heavily taxed the 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 upper echelon and created a burgeoning middle class and infrastructure and stuff like that, right? I mean, these are things that, that made... I mean, every society doesn't get a middle class, right? I mean, it's not a normal thing that a burgeoning... I mean, the Renaissance, right, with the plague, workers have a little more... Right, right. right. <laughs> but like, and, and so is, is it that the crisis in the seventies start to make people question this. Like what if we drop tax rates have less regulation, then we could get out of the malaise of the seventies. Right. So, um, right. When you, when you think of the Republican presidents of mid-century period, like, um, Eisenhower and Nixon, you know, a lot of people are like Nixon passed the environmental protection agency and he almost came close to a basic income. Um, and it's important to understand they were head. There's a number of actors on them, but they're they're, he, they're hedged in in a certain kind of ideological moment. In the same way, Bill Clinton was right. Um, you know, Bill Clinton in the '90s, I I think wanted to pass a much more generous welfare reform than he did, and and but at the end of the day, he was working in a very conservative moment, and so in his own way, like Nixon was and Eisenhower were, he ended up reinforcing that moment. Um, so you know, you think about what what. Um, what are some of the stuff that started to happen in the seventies? And you think of the energy crisis, um, which just had a real effect on middle-class Americans and also made command and control economics seem very complicated. Like the idea that you would kind of be able to handle this as a kind of engineering planning problem started to have some trouble. Uh, obviously the big one stagflation periods of very high inflation and high unemployment. Uh, and then also I'm, um, I just mentioned the book Fear City earlier, so it's, it's on my mind. Um, the near bankruptcy of New York and the urban crisis and the idea that urban liberalism with things like free colleges, free health care, kind of social democratic moment that was really alive in certain cities was seen to be as uh, encouraging crime, encouraging violence, encouraging disinvestment. And so the reaction that came out of those moments, things like a, a real change in kind of global institutions and also on the ground, practical lived ideas just was a big overhaul. Yeah. And so th then this leads to a sort of move to, you know, eventually get to Re to Reaganomics, right? Where, where it's just pretty much assumed that if you drop tax rates on the wealthy and on corporations that that everything kind of trickles down and life gets better for everybody for it gets better for the wealthy and for the worker, right? Like this sort of grand, you know, the, the this is Shangri-La, this is the panacea, right? Yeah. And particularly the progressivity of taxes, right? So the idea that like tax rates were 70%, right? In the sixties and seventies, which has a, and when Kennedy dropped it to like, that people thought that was kind of right wing, right? I mean, people Kennedy seemed that seemed like a very conservative move. Oh yeah, he was he was panned by John Kenneth Galbraith uh, and many other liberal economists at the time for bringing it down from eighty percent. Um, and it's important to understand the effect on inequality that it has, right? Because if you're a CEO and you're thinking, how can I loot my company a little bit more? How can I take more money out for me? Uh, how can I fight for the the most aggressive pay package? You know if if the marginal dollar is going to get taxed 80 cents, you know, once you're past millions of dollars, 
um, suddenly your board doesn't necessarily want to vote for it. You don't necessarily want to do it. And so that means more of the surplus in the firm, the more of the stuff that we create together is left over for workers and other people. And you really do see the con- countries that drop their top rates a lot. So a huge increase in, in inequality and needs can't just be justified by that kind of trickle down. People work harder. It's way more aggressive than that. So, um, yeah, so so when I when I talk about neoliberalism in the piece, I, I kind of emphasize three different things, and they're all sort of the same thing, but it's easier to break it down into its component pieces because people talk about them very differently. And one of them that I think is most common in the economic circles, which you just alluded to, is, is uh, I call it the Washington Consensus. Uh, that's an actual phrase from the time period. And I like using it because it's a documented thing. Um, a lot of these things, uh, one of the things Chape brings up is that not a lot of people call themselves neoliberal. Um, sometimes they did. I think Nolan Friedman did for a period. And that's, I don't know how much of an argument that is, because I think a lot of the big terms we use were originally created as kind of slurs. Um, Austrian economics, uh, if your uh, listeners know about Austrian economics, the actual phrase was created as a slur. Uh, it was a review of one of the big 1850s books. I'm forgetting which one it is. Not not way earlier than von Mises and all that. Uh, Manger, this, I think. Is, this is like Ron Paul's bedside reading. In Ron Paul's Paul's, right, the yeah, Austin, yeah, the Austin, yeah. He famously like loves this stuff. Right, right. This is much further right than like University of Chicago economics or mainstream, like the right wing of economics. Um, I think Menger was his name or so. Anyway, but crucially, he said like Austrian is provincial. It's not German. It's like the bumpkins in the country economics. And now people love that Austria, or, you know, you can become a very wealthy through think tank, uh, welfare charity, become very wealthy Austrian. So, um, there were things that happened. So like, just to kind of wrap up this point is, you know, you can look at something like the Washington consensus, the way the IMF and other institutions kind of saw what their mission was. And one of them was that you should lower tax rates. Tax rates should be much flatter. You should deregulate and privatize. You should weaken labor unions and make um, work a lot less solidaristic. You should liberalize finance, deregulate the financial sector and liberalize trade accounts. These had huge implications for inequality, for the world we live in, for the stability of our countries uh, and the stability of our economics. And it was a very, very much a political project that was carried out that at, 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 we can understand the kind of a first leg of neoliberalism. Can I ask you just one tangential question? Sure. That I really don't understand. Like people say that we've got to drop the corporate tax rate and cut the loopholes. Now, our t- corporate tax rate is like 30, 30 something percent or mm-hmm. 30. Now, GE got like $2 billion back. They didn't pay like any taxes. So if you drop the rate to like 20% but took the loopholes out, wouldn't that raise GE's taxes? Yes. So the the, here, the argument that I think both sides would agree with is that the the nominal rate, right, the the, the sticker rate, if you will, uh, is high compared to European countries. The problem is the effective rate is pretty low because it's like twelve percent, right? Or exactly. Once you include all the deductions and loopholes, and and we say loopholes, but some of it's by design. Um, the actual rate corporations are paying is much lower. So it's like, okay, well, you could just lower the top rate and close the loopholes. That's been common sense for a long time. The, the, the problem you hit with some of these disagreements is, one is that Democrats would like, and liberals would like to keep the amount of income coming from the corporate sector the same, or even increase it, where Republicans would like to cut that. So it's not just cutting it so that's like more streamlined, but actually cutting it overall. Um, there, I don't think there's very good evidence or 
the evidence is certainly not mixed that the economy would go gangbusters from those things. Um, and, and second is in, in their own ways, they want to introduce more loopholes because there's a lot of things like, um, the rate that's paid by S corporations. So like if you were to incorporate as your own company and then get hired by your employer as a contractor, you could do a lot of tax shenanigans, um, that would not change your nature of work at all or not change how productive you were, but simply just allow you to pay less in taxes. And that's that sounds like a great reality show. This week on tax shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and, and it could be hosted in Kansas, which just tried a bunch of this. And every bad prediction you would have made came true and was probably even worse than I think a lot of liberals thought, um, where Brownback turned Kansas into this giant right-wing tax experiment. And the country is just in uh, – the, the state is in real bad shape. It's like actually losing jobs. It's or certainly not gaining as much as its neighbors. Its budget's all screwed up. Everyone's just like hiding things in tax shelters, so or de facto tax shelters. So, yeah, there's there's it's one of those things where if you're dealing with um, a party that if you were dealing with conservatives who wanted to kind of like just streamline the tax code, it would be pretty easy, uh, or at least it wouldn't be that hard, right? Um, what they really want to do though is lower the rate, and they want to use this as an excuse to lower it, and then we got to debate or like is this the best way to lower taxes? Yeah, so it seems to me like the thrust of some of your recent writing is is that basically, look, Democrats, what you're doing is you're trying to move just a hair left of the Republicans. So you want to basically keep the corporate structures and whatnot in place and sort of domesticate them a little bit and create this sort of fragile coalition of the professional elites and the working class with some identity politics. And the problem with that cocktail is no one likes to drink it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, part of the argument for that kind of politics is that it would win elections, um, and it's not winning elections. So the proof of concept's dead in the water. Um, look, so, so I think a second way of understanding neoliberalism, and I think this is what's in the political sphere a lot more and gets confused to the other two, is this move of the Democratic Party to the center that started um, – in the late eighties. Awesome. It's in some sense started under president Carter, who was very interested in deregulation uh, and deregulating trucking and a bunch of other industries, uh, but really hit its stride in the late eighties and and with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. And it was a very conscious product. And and in the Vox piece, I kind of like give you some primary sources to read because it was very actively debated in these words. Um, But the idea is that the party was focused too much on uh, blacks and other minorities and other interest groups, um, the, what they were called interest groups. Uh, there was focused too much on labor. There was focused too much on big government programs. Uh, and so the priorities had to, sw- and it was also very, this is very big in the literature, is too focused on being soft on crime and not aggressive enough overseas. They were seen as like weak and, and timid. So it was, you know, we remember in particular the, um, there's a big focus on it. So you should move to means-tested programs carried out through the tax code, right? Which is stuff we complain about now. But it was seen as a conscious shift of we want smaller targeted government that just handles the worst off. Uh, we want it to be kind of hidden. It's not a big government program where there's a building that says government service. It's instead a little box to check on your tax code that gives you a little bit of cash when you use that when you use private services. Um, so you can think of a change from free public colleges to student debt, right? Like that kind of, or Pell Grants, right? Um, yeah, you cite an instance in the recent election that Bernie Sanders said we need to go to free college, you know, free undergrads, at least for public college and universities. And Hillary Clinton's response was, 
well, I don't want Donald Trump's kids getting free kind of thing. So she moved away, away from a universal right to a kind of subsidy for some people that need it. Exactly. And Bernie talked about explicit, Bernie Sanders explicitly talked about it as a right, which is a very different way of talking. And I think you are already hearing Democrats talk a lot more in that language after 2016. I think 2016 definitely shook it up. And we're going to talk a little bit about how it shook it up in a few minutes. Um, but so there's, there's definitely that shift that happened within the Democratic Party. And is also the, uh, and it accelerated in a different tempo in the aughts with the idea that you would have a professional class buttressed by young people um, and people of color, right? So you would have this kind of new emerging coalition. And I think a lot of Democrats really assumed that since it was kind of this demographic coalition, it would be inevitable and the winds would be at their sail. And even though it was a little rocky in the middle of Obama's years, we kind of had a lock on the presidency. Now we clearly don't. Um, so I think... Because in part, it was like, well, how do you motivate these people and how you motivate them? It was never actually really thought through. Um, and so I think there's definitely a big sea change going on right now. That's why I do wonder if we're at the approaching the end of a neoliberal era. But what comes after that is Lord only knows it could go very well or very poorly. And, and you know, it's interesting too. do people just overestimate ideological vote commitments of the electorate like i know a lot of people that voted for donald trump that wouldn't say they're right wing but they didn't like hillary clinton they thought maybe he'd boost the economy and the like these are you know the both candidates there wasn't maybe they didn't see a huge contrast on some of these economic issues or something i mean is that have they have they underestimated the capacity of a voter to just say "Ah, i'm not really concerned about give it a shot yeah no i mean I, i certainly think they thought um this is well documented uh, that uh, Trump was kind of a uniquely odd duck character and people would not come around to him, which was obviously very false. He's president of the United States now. Um, I, I, I think and, and as Scaramucci told us, he throws a spiral football through a tire. He shoots three throws through the cage. I was, like, I was like, this is like North Korea. The leader had 18 holes in one in his first round of golf. <laughs> I, I used to work in finance and I, I know of that guy. And so he's like the perfect compliment to trump he's like the most trump-esque character in the saga that's not trump um i, I think trump did a good by thing. the way that's the best line i've heard recently he's the most trump-esque saga in the character that's not trump <laughs> that's just great right, right right i want to take a quick break from my conversation with mike consul which we'll return to in just a moment to thank a few of you my sponsors peter stegenwald samantha blythe sari graham Jordan Morseberger and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash scott kent jones and there you can find information about how to give if you give just five bucks a month you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future thanks again to my sponsors and please if you like this podcast consider becoming a patreon sponsor and now back to my conversation with mike Conzel. and uh, and i mean trump I think Trump threw a real curveball into the dynamics, right? Because so obviously there's the racial resentment. I mean, he activated racial animosity in a way we did not see in a while. Um, that we d- certainly didn't see quite as prevalent and as aggressive. And, uh, you know, obviously people fought a ton about immigration in, in the Bush era. I remember that very well. Um, when George W. Bush tried to push for immigration and there's all kinds of political coalitions everywhere. Um, 
you know, obviously George W. Bush tortured uh, people of uh, people of the Muslim faith uh, in black sites and through rendition uh, that was eventually stopped. But he did not want George W. Bush took pains not to try to try to at least keep the public animosity towards Muslim Americans in check. Uh, and obviously, we're not seeing that as much as as we are now with with the attacks on the attacks on immigrants and on Muslims is of a just a nature that's different. That was one thing Trump brought to the table that was scary and still in the air. Right. The other things I don't think the Democrats are ready for that I think are equally important is when he was just like, "I'm going to defend Social Security. I'm going to defend Medicare and Medicaid." Which, uh, if you remember back to 2012. They ran, the Democrats ran on Mitt Romney as a plutocrat. And, and during the uh, vice presidential debate, Joe Biden, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan was blowing smoke about how he didn't want to attack all these programs. And Joe Biden just like kind of looked at the camera and was like, who do you trust on these things? And it was very apparent you would trust the Democrats if you wanted to protect those programs. Where um, Trump, in part because Republicans hated him, and in part because I think Democrats um, or professional Republicans in the establishment hated him. And because Democrats wanted to portray him as not a normal Republican, uh, was able to divorce himself from that. Uh, I think you saw in the polling where it was like Trump's going to look out for working class people in a way that is clearly not in his administration and clearly not in his priorities. At best, he's looking out for Trump himself. Um, and, I, and, and then third and last is just like there's so much distrust with government that um, Trump coming and saying, I'm corrupt, but I'll be corrupt for you was actually a very interesting and successful kind of gamble, right? But, you know, Hillary Clinton's, I'm a model bureaucrat, I'm a model public servant, but there's all these, like, question marks about all this stuff, and it just kind of creates distrust and creates discomfort, where Trump kind of owned the fact that he's corrupt, or has a lot of question marks about him, let's just say. I said, but I'm gonna, and he said this, like, I'll be corrupt for you. I know how to, I know how to play the system, I'm gonna finally play it for you. And if you don't trust government, and you just feel like you've been whittled down for a few decades, it's not a bad bet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it has been a strange... Uh, election season and now it seems like that the democrats are trying to do a little bit of soul searching are you convinced that this is at all going in the right direction or do you think that that's that actually uh that trump that they, that they could you know foul up this layup too <laughs> Well, they definitely could. So just to put cards on the table for your listeners who may not know me, I, I think that the Democratic Party should have a much more aggressive, what we'll just generically call populist approach to the economy, one that is much more aggressively and vocally in favor of workers. Um, one that crucially, and I think this is the Democrats' problem, is um, one that doesn't try to be like a humble intermediator and arbiter between you know, the business community and workers and kind of on everyone's side for the benefit of everyone but a party that stands up more directly for working class voters. And that's not code for white people because the Democrats have a working class problem with people of all races, as we saw in turnout data. Um, so I, I, just to put the cards on the table, I think the Democrats should move one step to the left in the economic space. Um, if that's Bernie Sanders, if that's Elizabeth Warren, that's, you know, who knows who the proper avatar will be going forward, though they're both doing a great job, Bernie in particular. Um, and so, and I, and I don't come to that lightly. I come to it because I think the old answers are not working anymore. I think the idea that if only we got people some more education, or if only we got people off their butts, or the, the idea that the economy is fundamentally working, we just have to make sure it works a little bit better for some more people. Uh, I don't think that cuts it anymore. I think the economy is broken. I think too much income is going to capital, to owners and bosses, and not enough to workers. I think... 
the privatization of a lot of the goods we need to survive, be it healthcare, education, housing, um, retirement, uh, is just not, we need more publicness in them. We need more bold public moves, um, because that relying so much on the market has not been working very well. Uh, and it's telling that the Republicans ran on this left-wing critique of Obamacare, uh, that its premiums were too high, its deductions were too high, it wasn't covering, it wasn't comprehensive enough, and they're going to move in a far-right direction where there's just even less kind of cost share and higher premiums, higher deductibles. So, um, so to put so put those cards on the table, I think yes, and I, and, and the reason I'm optimistic is because there's been no movement back. There's no been no movement to the center. If you if you read. A lot of the big people who push the Democrats to the center in the economic world, um, they're just exhausted. They, I don't think they have ideas about how to move us out of this situation. Uh, some of them in particular, reading them, they seem just very hurt about Trump and hurt in this kind of crybaby way that doesn't help anyone. Um, it certainly doesn't give us any sense of how to go. And, you know, the Democrats are a pretty big coalition, so some people push further left, some people push less left. But the idea that we're going to move towards more expansion of Medicare instead of trying to um, it, it, more expansion of Medicare, more expansion of free college, better wages for workers. That was a big thing the Democrats went behind. Antitrust, I think, is all very promising and developing. And if they do it right, I think they can make it connect with workers, kitchen table issues. Is it just also a problem of the candidate? I mean, you know, you think when Democrats have won, I mean, think about Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. They were both very charismatic People and maybe the reason they could broker that, or at least hold up the idea of being these brokers between different classes, is because these people were charismatic figures who seemed like they could do things like that, even if those, even if there are inherent tensions that make that unworkable. It seems like, well, hey, they can make them out and come to Muhammad. I mean, is it? Do you see any democratic political talent that would lead you to believe that? Okay, here's the message, and we've got the messenger. Yeah, it's, um, I, I tend not to try to do psychological theories of candidates, but it is, um, you know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are both very much products of the meritocracy. Uh, they both came from um, tough upbringings, but then used the educational sphere to and college and elite co- and elite law school to like propel themselves to the top of society. And that creates a very way of trying to triangulate among people and interests. And Barack Obama talks a lot about this in his, um, in his, uh, books. Um, um, what's the second book? Anyway, whatever. Um, talks a lot about having being thrown in a room. The audacity of hope. The audacity of hope. He talks a lot about being thrown in a room with corporate executives and stuff and, and kind of understanding is a kind of game to play to like, you know, kind of keep them in where like you think of someone like FDR, um, you know, FDR, was a rich person who was a traitor to his class in the famous phrase, right? Or Lyndon Johnson was a guy who was dirt poor and barely graduated college and worked as a teacher in a really poor district of Texas and just like kind of crawled himself up through the ugliness of Texas politics to the presidency, right? And and then got elected president, right? So um, it's interesting, those different backgrounds and how they put you in different kinds of modes with people. Um, there's a leadership gap in the in the mid tier, right? There's a lot of up and coming people who are really interesting. Um, you know, there's it, it's it's a little scary that a lot of the people who could most plausibly run in 2020, if you're talking about people like uh, Bernie Sanders again or Joe Biden, or people in their 70s, 
uh, Elizabeth Warren's younger, but she's not new to politics. Um, so it, it, there, there's a bench in the 30s and 40s, but we're, there's definitely a missing gap in there. Uh, and how the Democrats fill that and do that is going to be a big challenge in the next couple of years. You know, you have to you have to hope for a, a wave election, but in order to get a wave election, you really need a message and a sense of what what's gone wrong, a story about what's gone wrong, other than Donald Trump's tweets and erratic behavior, but much more structural criticism of what's going on. And do you think there's just a kind of psychological fear? Like you look at you know cap and trade, right? Which, which you know isn't Reagan says we have an acid rain problem. George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush solve it. He comes up with a free market way to limit emissions, right? And you could say, okay, here's a here's a market based idea. We try it, right? Now, if you support that, you're a socialist. Like, like I, I, it seems that that somehow the the terms of the debate have taken everything that's right of center and moved it way left of center, so that if you run on liberal ideas, you're going to, the fear is I'm going to be painted as a communist. I, the, the asymmetric polarization, I think is a really important dynamic. And it's the flip side of what's going on here, right? So it's, it is very tough to understand Barack Obama's first two, and I even say first three or four years in office without understanding that he thought he was going to, part of it is marketing. Part of it is, is a little bit on the salesmanship side, but I think he genuinely believed, and I think there's evidence of this, that he was going to issue in a post-partisan presidency, or at least he would help break the fever swamps of the right, that the right would, would understand that the kind of tables had changed and they would be more willing to work with him, which, of course, was the exact opposite, right? And, you know, uh, 50 years from now, the history books are going to look at this period. And if you had to reduce Trump's election to one sentence, it would probably be that he ran... he became a political figure questioning Barack Obama's birth, right? Birthplace. Uh, uh, and then became president, right? So like, clearly, like, the idea that this kind of post-partisan era happened or this post-racial period happened is definitely not true. And it also explains the structure of the ACA. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to understand why the Affordable Care Act is the way it is. Part of it is that many of the architects of it were directly involved or studied Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's failed attempt in the early 90s. Uh, so they overlearned those lessons. Uh, but crucially, they really do believe Republicans will support it because it's Republican ideas. Uh, not all of them, right? Um, but the individual mandate, it's carried out under Romney. Uh, and of course, that's not it at all. And the Republicans are playing a much more sieged earth tactical game. I mean, as we talk right now, the Senate is maybe going to redo the healthcare system with no hearings, no open debate. Um, and it's kind of scary, right? Because they're pushing the envelope further in the way than the Democrats are. I, I spoke with David French yesterday for the National Review, and he loves Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And he and his buddies say, like, when are the Starks going to, you know, get over their naive nobility and have a little more real politique? Are the Democrats like the Starks a little bit? Like, we're going <laughs> to, hey, we're going to be honorable here. And then they get their heads cut off. Yeah, man, I don't know. Uh, some of them need to take some of them need to take the black, in my opinion. But um, I don't. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought through all the, the, the right. Take the black. You screwed us over. You're taking the black. Yeah, yeah. There is a that, that is interesting. There's a little bit of that dimension to it. Of, um, but there's also not. I think there's also just uh, like they're stuck in one world, and the world's changing very rapidly. So how do they get in front of it? And some people like Chuck Schumer work are, are trying very hard. You can see it, right? Um, and I also, I think the, what happened with Gorsuch, 
Um, I'll, I'll make a confession to you. I, uh, I stole some baseball cards when I was like 12 and I still feel a little guilty about it. And Mitch McConnell just stole a Supreme Court seat. And you and know, no that, guilt. you know, that guy sleeps like a baby every night. Oh, absolutely. Kentucky uh, bourbon, a, a shot of bourbon. And he's going to sleep out like a baby. Um, so I think between Gorsuch and the way the ACA is being done, the kind of three stooges approach to it, which is both comical and terrifying. Um, I, I think that the norms have changed very dramatically in that way. And it's forced the Democrats to understand that they need to play hardball too. That's kind of scary, right? Because I don't know if we want to be escalating things more, but there's in some ways you can't not play the game of escalation, like the game of thrones. Yeah, this right? is the, the this is the high cost thing that people I think don't take serious enough, right? The, you can't legislate everything in in society, like you know the you know what does the scripture say? The law killeth, that the spirit giveth life. You know, like you can't constrain everything. So part of collegiality and friendship and things like these these norms were. You trust one another. And when these erode, it takes a long time to build them back, to to make, you know, things function better. And, and I mean, Trump's going to erode so many of them, right? Yeah. And I don't. Yeah. And it's, it's too early to tell on a lot of this stuff. I mean, I don't. If we remember back. So I'm 38, right? So my entire adult life, uh, my, I, I graduated college right before 9-11, right? So the period of the Bush years hangs very heavy. I mean, I, my political imagination and one thing about. Barack Obama and his candidacy, and it's part of the post-partisanship, bipartisanship kind of mystique of, of what he was trying to accomplish, um, was the idea that we need to be restored from the George W. Bush years, right? He was incredibly unpopular at the end. Um, the disaster in Iraq, the um, torture, and then obviously the financial collapse, which is less directly resulted from Bush, but still under his watch. Um you know, I think people will want kind of like a, a sense of American pride again. Now I don't, now it's so ugly so quickly and so pervasive. You could imagine someone in 2020 being like, okay, let's just kind of like pretend the last four years didn't happen. But I, one is I don't think that will get a lot of votes because I think people like Trump does have an agenda and he is carrying it out. With winners and losers, and then second is I don't I don't know how easily you go back from this. You know, I was uh, I listened to this podcast called the Imaginary Worlds podcast about like the imaginary worlds we create and why what they tell us about ourselves that you know like let's talk about Looney Tunes backgrounds or Wonder Woman and and a, a person said you should drink with economists and talk about the imaginary worlds and one of the economists that he talked with said that in ages of scarcity the imaginary worlds become ones of abundance and in an age of relative abundance. We imagine worlds of scarcity like Battlestar Galactica or The Walking Dead. So as an economist, do we really need to worry when we stop writing post-apocalyptic stuff that, oh, my gosh, <laughs> things are getting really bad? You know, you know what I would actually say about the imaginary world? You think about advertising, right? And you look back in the 30s or the 40s in particular, magazines in the 40s, it's all stuff, right? It's all like brand new kitchen appliances, washer dryers, cars. Um, now what is the big advertising thing is free time like the ability to not be at work with some boss the ability to unplug to not have to answer emails not have to clean up something like vacation is is the, i mean time is the real scarcity now right and you know people we're we're overworked and underemployed right so like there's there's not fewer people working at any time but like the labor force more precarious but people are also working a lot more for people who do work and 
that's interesting to me that I think the big scarcity we feel right now is the ability to have vacations, right? Um, you know, the, the polls of people who don't take their allowed vacation and just let it die out is actually really high. I don't have the numbers at the top of me, but it's like kind of shocking. And when people are asked, it's like, well, I can't ask for a vacation because I'll be like behind at work or my bosses will be mad at me or I'll be screwed and speaks to a real terror, right? Like if you think of your boss is a kind of mini government as like Elizabeth Anderson and uh, the great philosopher kind of describes it as um, that's a real tyranny that you don't have this kind of, your own time as much anymore. And so that's the scariest city. I, uh, I think so when we get people much more focused, even on what happens, when, like, even if you watch something like the walking dead, um, it's interesting. I'm sorry, we're off topic here, but like a lot of the zombie stuff plays with the idea. Well, now we don't have to go to work anymore. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, and sometimes very directly. And then sometimes even like walking dead, it's like, Okay, well, let's just, like chill on this farm for a while, or maybe we'll like take over this prison and clean it out, and then we can just like hang out here for a while. Uh, and the notion is like, you know, like at least I get a little bit like, what's the the REM song and in the world as we know? At least now I have some time alone. Like I think that's an interesting dynamic in a lot of these apocalyptic fantasies. Well, yeah, and a lot of the power of them, right, is that what? Who am I if all the social constraints were taken away? And what am I human or not? And so I think yeah, it's like it's almost like a rehumanization after some of these systems. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I found something the other day from some libertarianist website that came across on Twitter that Hayek, the libertarian thinker, right? He actually supported a basic income like because he thought that employers could have this state-like tyrannical power and that, that if a worker didn't have a guaranteed basic income, they couldn't have their freedom to actually function in the market because of that. You you see this with employer-based healthcare systems, right? That, that like that, that, it's so funny because it seems like if you were really a free market person, a kind of single payer system would make the market a lot more dynamic because a freelance web person could work for three different companies with the hours they wanted and not worry about, you know, locking themselves in to one 40 hour week or 50 hour, 40 hour becoming 80 hour for the healthcare benefits. Yeah, you have to be careful with Hyatt because it depends a lot on what decade you're catching him in. He's always on the right flank of where the consensus is in the mid century period. So in the in Road to Serfdom, which is 46, he's like, yeah, of course, you could have national health care. You could have uh, anti-monopoly enforcement. You could have a kind of robust state, but just don't centralize the economy. Uh, and then by 1960, because there's not going to be centralization, certainly in the United States, in 1960, constitutional liberty is like, actually, the problem is not planning, it's social justice. So get rid of all the welfare programs and just have a basic income. It's never tied together, but if you read them in succession quickly... With with the idea of like what okay so what does he want the state to do? Uh, it's it's and then by the seventies uh, with law legislation liberty he's just like Gonzo because <laughs> he's like there's yeah should be just like judge councils or stuff. It's been a while since I've read that, but yeah no definitely that it's interesting the notion of liberty. Eric Foner has a great book called The Story of American Freedom, which is basically like everyone every successful political movement always talks in terms of freedom, and conservatives definitely own freedom right now. Where, but like FDR, um, the Four Freedoms, the Second Bill of Rights, um, the Great Society later on, uh, Harry Truman's, like all that stuff is very much focused in freedom and what it means to be a free person in society. And, um, you know, I work with a lot of young people because the Roosevelt Institute also has a campus network that's active on about 100 campuses. The really interesting um, geographic diversity, like I'm really proud to work with, these, with this crew. Um, right? So I end up talking to a lot of younger people relative to most people in my job. 
And um, I was mentioning this idea of freedom, and they're like, well, that's obviously a right-wing idea. And I was like, well, no, it's not. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it maybe is right now. But this idea of en- emphasizing it more about how having a, a right to health care makes you free to take on risks as a business person, to have the family you want, to have the opportunities you want, I think it's so essential. And I think the right has absolutely abandoned any concept of that kind of freedom in exchange for freedom to be in the marketplace, which... Has a lot of fun, but has a lot of has a lot of uh, chaos too. When you go to like, do you go to like conferences where you find yourself like, you know, socializing with the Friedman economists and the and, and the Austrians and like, I mean, what are those? Do you mix it up with those folks at professional conferences? Um, that's a good question. Um, it depends. I work a lot on financial reform, so that's actually kind of like my core day job. Is I work a lot on um, what happened in the financial crisis and the legislative responses and regulatory responses, and so Dot Frank and all this stuff. And there, you know, you put together panels and you'll be at events, and there'll be like the conservative economists, um, there'll be like the center right people, the libertarian ones, and they all have their own kind of different disagreements about things. Uh, and in finance, it's pretty stark. There's the people who are like, there shouldn't be government bills, <laughs> like Hayek said at the end of his life. Uh, and like the dollar is evil. Uh, and there should be a gold standard and all this stuff. And then there's people who are more sensible and more centrist. But yeah, no, it's, I, I don't want to romanticize it. It's not so much like the life of the, it's, it's definitely different than the academy in part because so much of it's based out of DC. Um, that becomes very much about mobilizing. Than just straight inquiry, if that distinction makes difference. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and so I spend a lot more time with people who would. I spend a lot more time with people who are gettable and understanding their disagreements with me than with people who don't agree with me at all and never really would. And trying to like think of cool things that they say to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, absolutely, I, it's, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Now, if you were so for our listeners who are heading into, you know a couple elections, 2018 and 2020 and evaluating news and fake news. And yeah, <laughs> what would you recommend as a resource to read? Like, Hey, if they're going to read one readable, popular, digestible thing to get a handle on, you know, basics of the economy, the future and, and how to think about going into the, the ballot box, what would you recommend for them? Oh man, I don't know. That's a really tough one. Um, like, like books or sources? Sources, magazines, books, anything. I mean, where, where would somebody like get their feet wet around some issues that would give them a sense of the contrasts and, and what, and what matters other than your great Vox pieces, which I will link to in the show notes. Cause I, I found the pieces I've read really soon on, ne- on neoliberalism that you've written to be some of the most helpful things I, I've read. I like Vox a lot. I like, I like getting to contribute there. I'm a regular contributor there. Um, the, and have a reputation for having a kind of know-it-all thing, but I think the format they've they've figured out is very plastic, and so you can apply it in a lot of different directions. Uh, and some of their best work has been just kind of basically ex- basic explainers of what's going on overseas. Um, and, I, and I find that work particularly useful for them. So, um, I, you know, I like Vox.com, and I highly recommend it. So if a couple things, uh, there's a generic thing like the post has been doing really good work lately. Um, so I'm kind of like subscribed to them and much more involved with reading them. Um, one thing that will be a current that I think is, is sometimes overplayed, but if your readers or if your listeners aren't aware of it, it's, it's, it's important to know is like, you know, Bernie Sanders won 70 or 80% of young people, of young voters, right? So that's a, a huge number. And it implies that a lot of Democrats see the way wins coming. 
Uh, and so you might see this much more mobilized kind of democratic socialists or social democracy or however you want to phrase it, but a more kind of New Deal liberalism, as Bernie Sanders would say. Um, wh one journal that I'm involved with is Dissent, Dissent Magazine, which um, came out of the 1950s, and it's uh, very old school in its time period, but it's since been rebooted, particularly post-Occupy and, and, and all that work, with a lot more younger people who are editors, and it's um, a lot of the people there then go on to become people of the nation or at, at other kind of bigger places. But if you want to take a step back from the chaos of what Donald Trump's tweeting every day and think about where the kind of young left is coming from and where it wants to go, even if you don't agree with them or don't think you would agree with them, if you just want to kind of know what they're up to, um, Dissent Magazine, I think, is very useful. It's not super polemical, so it's very accessible. Uh, and it has a lot of brilliant people who are kind of thinking through what are the next steps for our country. If you want to keep tabs, you know, with the young people, see what the kids are into. The kids, man. I'm the old guy there, man. So that tells you that tells you what's going on. Mike, thanks for spending some time talking with me. I, I've really enjoyed it. I definitely want to have you back on. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And please do check out my console stuff. I will put tons of links to it in the show notes. You will not be sorry you did. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.